thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I am really, really excited about what we're going to begin covering today and probably extend into to next week because it's been just so transformational in my own life and we're really coming today to the nub of the why of Christian engagement in politics. But, but let me say this, engagement will not be the same for everyone, but non-engagement is not an option for anyone. Let me say that again. Engagement, the form of engagement, will not be the same for everyone, but non-engagement is not an option for anyone. Not in our form of government, where authority, which comes from God, has been mediated or delegated from God to our political leaders through us, the people, voters. And it was because of our form of government and this delegation of authority concept that, that all authority is rooted in God and therefore must be delegated authority. Remember the witness of the Roman centurion to Jesus who said, I can tell people what to do because I'm under an authority. He realized that all authority comes from some higher authority. And it's because of that I've traditionally spoken of Christian political engagement is a matter of stewardship, stewarding the authority that God has entrusted to us in our form of government. But I've come to see that it's more than that, that the reason, the why, for our political engagement as Christians goes far deeper than just a matter of stewardship. Our political engagement is actually rooted in an aspect of the gospel that was prominent in the early church among the patristic fathers up until the late fourth century. People who discussed the gospel like Irenaeus and Origen of Alexandria and Athanasius and Gregory of Nyssa. But it was an aspect of the gospel that was forgotten by most of Protestantism since about the middle of the 11th century except perhaps in the Eastern Orthodox Church, which, to be honest, is outside the tradition I grew up in, and it's not predominant in the United States, and, and I'm not well versed in it. But our, our political engagement is really rooted in our understanding of the gospel and an aspect of the gospel that's been largely forgotten, but was first and foremost on the minds of the theologians of the church for the first 300 years. And, and you know, I just want to say here as an aside, if, if names like Irenaeus and Origen and Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, are, are unfamiliar to you, and if you don't know the difference between the Eastern Orthodox views on various doctrines from those that we in the West are more familiar with, then, then join the club. About three or four years ago, I didn't really know much church history at all, just one never covered, let alone different theological disputes between 
the Eastern and the Western churches. I think maybe I'd heard of Athanasius, maybe Origen. I seem to remember the phrase, Athanasius against the world, Athanasius contra mundo, but, but I couldn't have told you anything about them or what they stood for or what they believed or, or the debates and disputes going back and forth between them. They, they would have been basically foreign to me, and, and maybe they are to you. But, but that's sad because uh, we've lost something here, and that's what I want to cover today, a part of the gospel that's been lost. And believe it or not, what I'm referring to is the atonement. Now, the atonement is one of those buzzwords in the Christian church that if you've been raised in the Christian church, you've heard of the atonement. You've probably heard of original sin. You've heard the words redemption. You know, there's just certain words you know. But if your first thought when I said the atonement is what does our view of the atonement have to do with why we should be engaged in politics or how we should be engaged, then to be honest again, you're right where I would have been a few years ago. And I hope you will find today's episode and perhaps what we'll be getting into next week as enlightening and even as thrilling as the discovery of the material I'm about to share was to me. My theology, the place at which we should all start our understanding of anything, has deepened. My understanding of the gospel, history, and meaning has been expanded. My sense of purpose and focus has been narrowed, and with that, I find I have a greater sense of peace in what I'm doing. I'm not as scattered and as helter-skelter and uh, as, as I've been in the past. And, and perhaps most importantly, my sense of awe, wonder, amazement, and worship of God has been magnified. And I pray that's the consequence of what you'll be hearing over the next few minutes and perhaps into next week as well. Now, uh, let me put this issue of the atonement in a bit of a context that will help make more understandable what I'm about to say, and also some of what I've been saying for the last few weeks about starting with theology as opposed to anthropology. Or put another way, starting with the objective rather than the subjective, starting with propositional truths about God and what God's done that inform our subjective feelings, our subjective experiences, rather than the other way around, where we tend to examine ourselves and our experience and our feelings and then go to the Bible looking for that which would authenticate them or explain them. That happens a lot. I'm experiencing this. This is happening to me. I'm going to go to the Bible and try to find it to make sense of it rather than going to the Bible and saying, oh, this makes sense of my experience. We interpret the Bible backwards. But that's not to say that the subjective is unimportant or less important than the objective aspects of, of the Scripture and the work of Christ. They both are. To our Christian life. But what I've been saying 
from the clip that I've used from Restoring the Vision that Dr. Grant has said several times. We should always start with our theology, not with ourselves. Let me play that clip just one more time. Every time we come to a question of what should government do, uh, what should our local community do, uh, what should our uh, county commissioners do, uh, what should our city aldermen do, our first question ought to be, who is God and what has he done and what are the implications of that to the myriad of issues that we face? Now, now I'm going to skip today Dr. Grant's comment about we start with who God is, because I want to focus on, on what he said about asking ourselves, what has God done? And you simply cannot answer that question unless you take into consideration what the theologians call the atonement, what God did on the cross. All Christians, probably even non-Christians, would say that the cross is the central aspect of Christianity. What you make of the cross is what Christianity sort of is. What took place there? Who did what? Who was it who was doing what? And so you have to get the atonement right, okay, to know what God has done. And here's the point for today. Since the debates between two men, Anselm, on the one hand, and Abelard on the other, in the middle of the 11th century, beginning in around 1050, let's say, the atonement has generally been viewed from one of two perspectives of what God was doing on the cross, either objective or subjective. And, and again, here's what I mean by that. Anselm, for example, focused on the incarnation and the objective aspects of who Christ was and the atonement being directed toward the honor of God that had been debased by man's sin, making things right with God. Abelard followed him and he focused really on the subjective aspect of the atonement that the Incarnation and the cross were directed toward expressing and demonstrating God's love for the sinner. Now, which of those two views of the Atonement do you think is dominant today? Well, clearly, the subjective. But we have to appreciate that along with this subjective focus came a gradual de-emphasis or lack of focus on the objective nature of Christ's work and the relationship of Christ's work to God himself. In other words, the aspect of the atonement focused on God rather than on the individual began to wane. And so the view of the atonement and the gospel became God loves you and wants to save you. Does that sound familiar? And here's this point that we've been trying to make over and over and over and I I'll just keep repeating it because it's so fundamental, and if I'm not repeating it, I'm forgetting it. Creation had nothing to do with this subjective emphasis and understanding of the atonement, which again, I mentioned, is at the heart of all of our previous discussions about Genesis 1 and 2 Christians, 
versus Genesis 3 Christians. You may remember the episode with Dr. Andrew Sandlin on, I think it was uh, March 19th. Go back and listen to it if you missed it. This subjectivism, this subjective, anthropologically focused theology has left Christians defenseless in a subject-driven, subject-oriented, me culture. Here is what Andrew Sandlin said in his wonderful and simply written book, Creational Worldview. I'm reading on page 119 if you have a copy. He says this, if our worldview is shaped only by redemption and not by creation, we will be at a severe disadvantage in opposing alien ideas surrounding us that aren't specifically opposed to redemption but are opposed to creation. A good example is today's gender fluidity and transgenderism. While these lifestyles are obviously a result of the fall and while they signal humanity's desperate need for redemption, they're not specifically attacks on the cross and resurrection. Rather, they lay an intellectual ax to the root of the Christian worldview, creation. He goes on to explain this a little further, what he means by if we're only focused on redemption, God loves you and wants to save you. On page six of the book, he says this, if you've wondered why so many evangelicals have now made their peace with homosexuality and same-sex marriage and same-sex attraction and transgenderism and gender fluidity and egg harvesting and surrogate motherhood, you now have one striking reason. These practices weren't thought to impinge on the evangel, which is the predominant Christian message and practice before which all others must bow. And what he's meaning there by the evangel is the truncated view that the gospel doesn't start in Genesis 1, but starts with, I'm going to send a seed who will crush the head of Satan. It's all about me and my redemption, not about God's creation and the restoration of his creation and the creation of a second man, a, a, a last Adam, to do what the first Adam failed to do. So he goes on. Opposing same-sex marriage or egg harvesting might keep evangelicals from reaching more people with the gospel, getting them saved, their souls, so they're willing to marginalize these issues and mute their biblical testimony. Wow, compelling and convicting words. Well, let me, let me move on. Uh, but it's in this context of this subjective versus objective view of the atonement and the, the gradual increase in focus on the subjective aspects of the atonement, even over the objective aspects, that we come to this view of the atonement that's been left behind that was so prominent in the early church and it would be called, if you began to look it up, the Christus Victor, meaning Christ the Victor view of the atonement. Now rightly understood, this view of the atonement does not diminish and it certainly doesn't displace the view of the atonement that's had its focus or terminus, you might say on God, 
and the vindication of God's honor by Christ's atoning sacrifice, the objective or Anselmian view. It certainly doesn't displace or replace the view uh, of the atonement that at its focus or its terminus, you might say, on the individual and the love of God for persons demonstrated by Christ's death, the subjective or the Abelardian view. But the Christus Victor view of the atonement posits a third way of seeing what Christ did, but its focus or terminus is on the devil himself, not God, not the subject, the devil. Now, let's just be honest. We don't like to talk much about the devil these days because people think we're crazy. They might believe in God, but they don't believe there's any kind of devil. But you can't read the scripture and not see that the scripture's talking about a devil. And, and let me just cover a few things that relate to this view of Christ the victor that I want to pick up on next time and discuss more fully. But perhaps between now and next week, you can think on these verses. First of all, there's 1 John 3, 8, which says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Oh, you're of the devil. That's a harsh word, isn't it? It's not that you're just bad, but you're of the devil. Remember, Jesus said that to the Pharisees when he said, you're of your father, the devil. You see, there's a, there's a, a relationship here between the unregenerate, unsaved, lost, fallen person and the devil. He says, First John continues, who's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, now, here we go, what would you say? Was to love the world, to vindicate God's honor. Well, John wrote it this way. Was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, let's look at Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children, us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. We also see this verse in Colossians 2.15, when it's talking about the cross, it said, He, referring to Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. I mean, those words in these verses make clear there was a devil who was the target of God's actions and Christ's work which was to destroy the devil, to destroy the power of the devil, and to triumph over him, thus the expression Christus Victor. Why this was so important in the early church? And why do we not talk about it today? And what is it? Again, here's just another couple of verses let me point out. Jesus said this in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So there's something, right? 
that's taken people captive, that's oppressed people. Well, let's, let's just look on and see at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, where Paul is speaking about the elder or the overseer in the church must be a, a person of good reputation, both in and outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Hmm. Sounds like a person who would take you captive, keep you from liberty. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26, it says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and here's the key part in terms of Christus Victor, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. They are, as John said, of the devil, held by the devil, captive to the devil, not just to bad ideas. And so we're going to come back and look at this next week because what you're going to find, I hope is what I found, that the history of redemption, something we don't talk much about, the history of redemption disclosed in the Bible from beginning to end is about destroying the works of the devil that God might accomplish the purposes that he set forth in Genesis chapter 1. And I hope you'll join me next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.